Welcome to this book launch. Um, this is the book launch of an Arabic translation of Seth and Ziska's book, Preventing Palestine, a Political History from Camp David to Oslo. Uh, it's the pleasure of the Institute of Palestine Studies to present the Arabic translation of this book, Qat'a al-Tariq ala Palestine, Tariq Siyasi min Camp David ila Oslo. That's the Arabic title, Tarjim al-Dawud Talhami. Uh, we will be um, we will be uh, speaking in English, uh, as as you know. There's a possibility of uh, online Arabic uh, simultaneous translation. Um, I'm Rashid Al Khaldi. Uh, I am the Edward Said Professor of Arab Studies at Columbia, and I'm the co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies. And uh, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce a former student of mine, uh, Professor Seth Anziska who is the Mohammed S. Farsi Polonsky Associate Professor of Jewish Muslim Relations at University College London. Uh, he has written in a number of venues, including the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, Plus 972 Magazine. He's a visiting fellow at the US Middle East Project. Um, and he is the author of this, I think, very important book uh, entitled Preventing Palestine, A Political History from Camp David to Oslo. Um, we're going to proceed as following, uh, as follows, um, uh, following the introduction of, of Seth and of the book. Uh, he will say a, a few words about his book. Um, I will then ask him some questions. Uh, and then if we have time, this event will, will, will only go for an hour. Um, if we have time, we may be able to take some questions from the audience. Um, I suggest that you, if you have any questions, that you type them into the chat box at the bottom of the screen um, in Arabic or in English. Um, uh, and, and if we have time, we, we, we may be able to take some of those questions. Um, okay, uh, with that as an introduction, let me hand over to Seth for you to say something about your, uh, your book. Tada, please, go ahead. Shukran uh, Rashid ala hadhi al-mukaddima al-sahiya wa aidan ala da'amuka li hadha al-kitab awalan bilurat al-Inglizia badan ma'a risalat al-doktorah wa al-an bilurat al-Arabiya ma'a muasasat al-dirasat al-Filistiniya fi Beirut wa Ramallah hadha al-kitab innahu li sharafin azim an yatima nashru kitabi ma'a al-muasasat alati kanat mastaran رئيسياً لي للتعرف على فلسطين والتي أجريت في مكتبتي جزء من البحث لرسالة الدكتوراه ليس هناك ناشر أكثر تميزاً لناشر هذا الكتاب في اللغة العربية وأريد بشكل خاص أن أشكر الأستاذ محمد علي خالدي رئيس لجنة البحوث على إشرافه للناشر وداود تلحمي على الترجمة الحساسة والدقيقة وكذلك للموظفين في المؤسسات الذين أشرفوا على نشر هذا الكتاب الجميل ولورا الباست على تنظيم هذا الحدث يأتيكم العافية And now I'm going to speak in English, but I can translate for those uh, who don't. Uh, thank you, Rashid, for the generous introduction, but also for bringing this book to publication first uh, in English beginning as a PhD and now uh, in Arabic uh, in this beautiful edition with the Institute for Palestine Studies uh, in Beirut and Ramallah. It's a great honor 
to have published it with the Institute, which has been for me a foremost resource for learning about Palestine uh, and whose library I've uh, conducted research for part of my doctorate. Uh, and I could think of no better publisher for the Arabic edition. Uh, and I also especially want to thank Professor Mohammed Ali Khalidi, who's the chair of the research uh, committee uh, for overseeing publication, Daoud Telhami for the sensitive and careful translation, uh, as well as to the staff at the Institute who worked on publishing this beautiful book, as well as Laura uh, Albast for organizing this event. And it's particularly meaningful to talk about preventing Palestine with an audience from the Institute for Palestine Studies just days after the anniversary of several events that I explore uh, in the book from the Camp David Accords uh, to the Sabra and Shatila massacre. These historical junctures, which frame my wider argument about curtailing Palestinian rights politically through Israel's bilateral peace with Egypt, and militarily uh, in the 1982 Lebanon war deserve closer attention, especially I think during this very bleak moment facing the wider Palestinian struggle for justice. So briefly, I'd like to outline the main argument of the book and some of the new revelations within it, tracing how this history shapes ongoing Palestinian statelessness, as well as Israeli and American approaches to the struggle for self-determination. And I look forward uh, to the Q&A with Rashid and, and the discussion uh, that will follow. Um, to start, just to say that the story of Palestinian state prevention does not begin in the second half of the 20th century, as you all know well, but is rooted in late Ottoman and British periods of control uh, and the encounter with Zionist immigration and settlement starting well before the Nakba in 1948. Um, and then the reason uh, my focus in this book is uh, on a period much later is to explain how and why at a critical juncture when Palestinian demands for self-determination were being taken seriously on a global stage, that is in the 1970s, those very demands were curtailed and replaced with a notion of limited autonomy, uh, a notion I would argue that has shaped Palestinian political life through the Oslo Accords and until today. So why the late 1970s uh, as a focus of this book? Well, there's three real conjunctures, I think, that we need to consider. And the first is the PLO's orientation towards partition, uh, which especially after the 1973 war takes root as a viable political program uh, for Palestinian political claims. Uh, and this, this has been traced, I think, very elegantly in Yazid Sayo's work uh, on Palestinian uh, political history, um, also uh, in the work of Paul Chamberlain on the impact of the 1973 war. But the late 1970s is a moment that's ripe, uh, I think, for a, a shift in the Palestinian political program. The second is the election of Jimmy Carter in the United States as the U.S. president and a turn away from Cold War. Uh, attitudes in the Middle East, which had predated him, uh, certainly a turn away from detente, with a greater focus on human rights. And this, in some ways, encompassed his understanding of the Palestinian question. And thirdly, and, and the other uh, sort of part of this triangle, is the election of Menachem Begin as the first Likud prime minister of Israel in 1977. And so it's these three 
um, shifts, I would argue, that lead us to think uh, about the 1970s. And it's through a close examination of recently declassified documents uh, from Israeli and American records of diplomatic efforts during the Carter administration, uh, which centered initially around the idea of a comprehensive regional peace that swiftly gave way to a bilateral agreement between Egypt and Israel that the source of preventing Palestinian sovereignty can actually be discerned. Now, there are also structural impediments to engagement with Palestinian claims. Uh, we know, of course, of the ban on PLO engagement um, with the United States that was codified in 1975 by Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, but also the broader domestic US political context that would not countenance the discourse on Palestinian rights. Very famously, Carter himself was the first US president to talk about the idea of a Palestinian homeland, uh, using that term in a speech in Clinton, Massachusetts, and it instigated outrage domestically uh, among supporters of Israel, but also amongst Cold War hawks who felt that this was a grave uh, uh, retreat um, in, uh, in Cold War terms. Um, my book also looks at Egypt's troubling role in this story, given Anwar al-Sadat's efforts to move away from Soviet influence to the United States and his willingness to abandon Palestinian claims for statehood in, uh, in the West Bank and Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem, largely, uh, I would suggest, as a function of his domestic priorities. But of course, he had an ideal partner in Menachem Begin, whose ideological worldview would never countenance Palestinian political claims, uh, and who saw the territories, which of course Begin never called the territories, he always called them by their Hebrew names of Yehuda Bishomron, Judea and Samaria. He saw them as essential to Israeli control, and he also understood Palestinian Arabs as a minority, um, perhaps deserving of some kind of limited uh, rights, but certainly not self-determination. Uh, and the building of settlements uh, under his watch in the late 1970s and into the early, early 1980s, uh, planned by his Minister of Agriculture and later his Defense Minister, Ariel Sharon, are a central part of this story. This is really the moment when what Sharon calls, quote, a matrix of control uh, is developed, which is intended to break up uh, the West Bank highlands and prevent the possibility of contiguous Palestinian territory. Um, and Begin, of course, never imagined negotiating the fate of these territories when he went to Washington in uh, 1977 and 78. And ultimately, the book uh, argues he got his way. He talked about local authority uh, for Arabs. He doesn't call them Palestinian. He talked about control over commerce and education, but of course, Israel maintaining security. And it's almost akin in a way to the blueprint that would later emerge for the Palestinian Authority. Uh, of course, also directly contravening the approach that Jimmy Carter himself had taken. Just to, to, to read you one quote from uh, one of the documents I found uh, of these meetings, this was uh, what Begin said to Carter, the number of Jews living in Judea and Samaria is not an obstacle to the autonomy for an Arab inhabitants. Why can't Jews and Arabs live together? In Haifa, they live together. In Nazareth, they live together. This is the idea, to live together. We want to make sure there is security, and there is no Palestinian state. And as I detail in the book, a political solution for Palestinians was gradually overshadowed by efforts to achieve bilateral peace between Egypt and Israel. These, of course, culminated in the 1978 Camp David Accords, 
um, which successfully dislodged the question of Palestinian rights from any final uh, agreement as declassified notes and documents now reveal. Also interestingly, and I think Rashid might have something to say about this, notes uh, uh, in included in the Egyptian delegation uh, from these talks, which were later given to Palestinian negotiators in Madrid as a warning of what not to let happen uh, when it came to discussing the fate of Palestinian uh, political claims. Uh, of course, this first for formal recognition of Israel by an Arab state was a milestone achievement for, for Israel and for Begin, neutralizing military threats from the Southwest. But like the Abraham Accords today, the severing of any linkage with broader progress on Palestinian claims enabled Israel to consolidate and deepen its territorial hold between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, as the second half of the book explores, the 1980 election of Ronald Reagan solidified many of the trends already unleashed by Camp David, uh, but also growing neoconservative influence enabled the massive expansion of settlements with greater legal permissiveness towards the building plans of the Begin government. Um, for example, this is just a, another uh, kind of dis discovery that, that, that I made in, in the research of this book, the, the whole concept of the settlements not being illegal, but just being obstacles to peace, which became a kind of policy shift in the Reagan White House, were the byproduct of neoconservative legal thinking of Israeli and American jurists at the time. Um, and uh, if you just look at the numbers from 1977 to 1992, before Oslo, Settlers in the West Bank and Gaza increased from about 2,500 in 1977 to 105,000 in 1992. Uh, it's also the Reagan administration, uh, as discoveries I made in the notebooks of Charles Hill, the Assistant Secretary, the Assistant Secretary of State Alexander Haig. It's the Reagan administration that gave a green light for Israel's June 1982 invasion of Lebanon, whose 40th anniversary we marked this summer. Uh, as Haig told Sharon during a meeting at the White House, uh, during a meeting in Washington, excuse me, in May of 1982, uh, it would be, quote, like a lobotomy. Uh, and my argument in the book is that what began uh, largely as a political battle to defeat Palestinian nationalism, one that Begin had waged successfully through the Camp David Accords and the autonomy talks, shifted to a full-blown and catastrophic military campaign in Lebanon leading to Israel's saturation bombing of Beirut, thousands of casualties and long-term Syrian occupation of the country among many other consequences we can discuss. Notoriously, it also led to the Sabra and Shatila massacre whose 40th anniversary we just marked this weekend and uh, about which sources I obtained tell a deeply disturbing story of US complicity and Israeli knowledge of the extent of violence and expulsion that Phalangis had discussed well before Bashir Jamal's September 1982 assassination, uh, comments that were being made by senior Maronite politicians in the presence of Israeli security officials about instigating several dear Yassins, invoking here uh, infamous massacre from the 1948 war. Uh, I can say more about the secret appendix of the Kahan Commission and other findings that came out in the research for this book. Um, ultimately, what has been called Israel's Vietnam transformed global perceptions, Zionism, and instigated many other developments, including the PLO's exile to Tunis and the shift to local forms of activism in Palestine with the outbreak of the First Intifada, 
But for Israel and for the United States, it only extended efforts to sidestep Palestinian nationalism, focusing instead on uh, what were called quality of life initiatives and economic schemes involving uh, Jordan. Again, I think there's a really interesting line we could trace foreshadowing what, what we see happening today. Uh, by way of concluding, the book examines the Madrid and Washington talks in the early 1990s as a moment of Palestinian participation in their own political fate, but it also explains how this was undermined by Oslo and the deeper imprint of Begin's autonomy scheme. The blueprint for a sub-sovereign Palestinian entity that had been introduced in the 1970s, I argue, was now the template for the Israeli and US concept of what Palestinians could or should achieve in political terms. Moreover, and I think this is uh, something worth exploring a bit further, Yasser Arafat and the PLO Executive Committee, the embodiment of the Palestinian national struggle, approved the template when signing the accords. So the Oslo process thus remains a crucial bookend to Camp David, which Arafat and the PLO had so strongly opposed on the very same grounds that it would prevent Palestinian self-determination in the occupied territories. This brings us uh, to our troubling contemporary moment where talk of a fully sovereign Palestinian state is totally dead and buried. And instead we see deepening consolidation, violence, and what could only really be described as evisceration. If competing political visions ever circulate, they are not premised on the attainment of equal rights, individual or collective, uh, in either two states or one. Uh, the Palestinian Authority itself is party to this dynamic. As Palestinian popular anger, you can just see from the videos today in Nablus, uh, uh, a reveal as well as Israeli fears or growing Israeli fears over losing control in the West Bank make clear. Uh, and likewise, we could talk about or, or think in parallel about the, the role of Hamas in Gaza, which in key ways helps contain this dynamic as well. Uh, my argument in this book is that we need to look well earlier than Oslo to understand the roots of state prevention and these distressing conditions and to listen closely to the echoes of autonomy that are evident today. Uh, with greater historical distance, the availability of new sources, we can more clearly see that the 1978 Camp, 78, excuse me, Camp David summit was in fact a formative moment of disenfranchisement. By proffering autonomy as an alternative to full sovereignty, the Begin government cemented a definite control over Palestinian life without any expiry date or formal annexation, extending Israeli sovereignty beyond the 1967 borders. And in this way, I also think some of the arguments that surfaced around the question of Benjamin Netanyahu and annexation are a, a red herring. Uh, I, I do not believe this was inevitable. And this is something I made clear in the book. Uh, there are contingencies that we must be mindful of along the way, certainly if we think about this as historians. I also think that statelessness has led to new constellations and political possibilities outside of the paradigm of partition that were never anticipated earlier, certainly not by the PLO in the mid-1970s. But whatever outcome might uh, one day emerge, uh, it cannot be separated from underlying principles of self-determination that are at the heart of Palestinian demands. And with that, I will conclude. Uh, thank you. Thank you very, very much, Seth, uh, for that uh, survey of a very large and very, I think, uh, astute 
analysis, which you 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 have you have carried out in a in a remarkable book. I'm so happy that it's now available in Arabic. I want to I want to focus on three things that you talked about, and I'm going to ask you a question about each of them later. I want to focus firstly on the centrality of what happens at Camp David in 1978. Um, you lay out, I think, very convincingly how Begin's idea of autonomy, which involves Israeli sovereignty and Israeli security control, and essentially indirect rule over the Palestinians, is accepted at Camp David at the summit between Jimmy Carter, Anwar Sadat, and Menachem Begin as the ceiling for the Palestinians. This is the most that the Palestinians can aspire to under the Camp David formula. And we, we forget that Camp David was not just a meeting between Egypt and Israel and the United States to sign a peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. It also established a parameter for autonomy. So Egypt agreed to negotiate with Israel and the United States over the future of Palestine at Camp David. And the ceiling for the Palestinians that all three parties agree upon is autonomy. And I think I, 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 I cannot stress enough how important that is. Um, I have to say, you're not the first person to realize this. The first person that I, I know of who realized this was Alayr Hamoud Dr. Elias Shufani. In his book published by the Institute, Tariq Begin Ila Camp David, essentially laid this out. This was decades ago. Um, but you're the first person to show, Elias uh, showed it, Dr. Shufani showed it analytically by reading what was published. You've shown it by going into the government documents of Israel and the published American documents. I, I'd like you to say a little bit about this because. I don't think people fully realize this. When we went as a, when I went as an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to Madrid and to Oslo, we didn't realize that the American and the Israeli and the Egyptian positions were cemented, that statehood was off the table, self-determination was off the table, uh, uh, sovereignty was off the table. The limit was so was was Begin's idea of autonomy. I, I, I don't know if you want to say just a little more about that. Well, the first thing to say is that people don't pay attention to what Begin was saying throughout the entire process of the administration's invitation for him to come to Washington. There are numerous press interviews and public discussions where he was very clear that at no point would he ever consider talking about the fate of the West Bank and Gaza in these Camp David discussions. In contrast, and this is what I think the documents are really uh, revealing about, is that before Carter issues this invitation, there are extensive discussions, largely with the work of Bill Quant, who is the National Security Council Middle East advisor and others, about a comprehensive settlement in the Middle East that would have included some form of sovereignty. Not clear exactly what it would look like or if it would be in conjunction with Jordan, so it, let us not idealize it, but there were clear parameters in place for a much more expansive resolution of territorial claims that also involved Syria uh, and also involved uh, Egypt. Those were fleshed out, developed, and are clear and accessible in the documents from the early months of the Carter White House, and that was this kind of big idea of a regional peace. It's in the process 
of the discussion. Just, just to add, and that was that was further emphasized at the beginning of the Carter presidency by the American Soviet Joint Communique. Exactly. Which talked about a comprehensive settlement and a peace conference. Yeah. And the involvement of the PLO. Go on. Yeah. Which, by the way, just to add to this, explains, I think, to some extent, why there's such a backlash in the 1980s. Because it's not only critics who are big supporters of Israel and Zionism in the 1970s who oppose this. It's also Cold War hawks who feel this is letting the Soviets off the hook and is uh, undermining America's position in the Middle East. So I think it's connected to that as well. But in the very discussions that then happen in Washington and the private meetings are, you know, what I didn't expect when I went in particular to the Israel State Archives in Jerusalem, which at the time had opened, its, its reading rooms were open and accessible. It's now been digitized, which is for lots of reasons, much more, I think, problematic um, way of, of, of working. But there were transcripts of all of the meetings at which uh, Egyptian, Israeli, and American officials were talking about these different parameters. And what becomes clear is that initial position that Begin always expressed, that he would never countenance sovereignty, uh, is embedded in every single discussion that takes place. Now, Sadat it rhetorically opposes this. He makes uh, uh, quite a spectacle out of saying that he would not sell out Palestinians, when in fact, it's very clear from the evidence that he does. And uh, there, you know, we could talk about why and what the factors there are, but it's, uh, and, and why many of his advisors end up opposing the signing of the treaty in 1979. But in this process, he basically gives up on the idea of preserving that possibility. Now, uh, Carter and the Americans are in a way forced into this dynamic where what they had anticipated would be some grand Middle East regional settlement ends up being a much narrower bilateral peace. And of course, the constraints domestically only intensify as this period of time goes on. Think about what else is happening in the world and what else is happening in the United States by 1979. And uh, this, uh, this treaty becomes uh, in a sense, uh, a success on the terms in which Carter sees it, but far, far uh, uh, less than what he had hoped uh, to begin with. Um, and of course, the exclusion of the PLO, I think, from the possibility of this discussion also shapes the outcome of those accords. Um, and that goes back to Kissinger's opposition to PLO engagement, despite the fact that the, the Secretary of State, Cyrus Vance, had made extensive efforts, or there were efforts underway, to try and engage the PLO or to try certain uh, dialogue. There was informal and secret dialogues that were happening at the time. Um, and ultimately, and this is a story of an internal Palestinian uh, discussion over uh, UN Security Council Resolution 242, a decision to forestall endorsement of that resolution. Uh, you know, it's, it's a bit um, risky to ask the counterfactual, I think, here about what would have happened if things had proceeded differently or if Palestinians had been part of that uh, discussion. But they would never have entered on the terms in which the Americans, Egyptians, and Israelis had outlined them. I want. I hope we're going uh, slowly enough for the uh, for the simultaneous translation to keep up. I, I'm trying to speak as slowly as I can. Um, the the second the second uh, subject I want to ask you to talk about a little bit is. Um, some of the, the the importance of some of the revelations in this book uh, regarding Israeli and American responsibility, uh, insofar as the Sabra and Shatira massacres are concerned, 
and um, the way in which the Lebanon War of 1982, in which Israel invades uh, starting in June of that year, is really a joint American-Israeli decision. Um, one of the things that I was most struck in, in uh, by in your own dissertation and later in the book, and now we have it, the book in Arabic, is the fact that um, we actually have the minutes of the meeting at which Sharon comes to Washington in May of 1982 to get approval for the entire program of this war. He tells Haig more than he tells the Israeli cabinet. He tells Haig exactly what he intends to do. I will eliminate the PLO. I will remove the Syrians from Lebanon. I will create a puppet state in Lebanon. Those are not the terms that he uses, but that's what he says Israel is going into Lebanon to do. The cabinet, the Israeli cabinet, is meanwhile told, we're going to have a limited advance that may be larger than none of these objectives are laid out clearly for the Israeli government or the Israeli people. So the Israeli people go into a war and the Israeli cabinet goes into a war approving an invasion of Lebanon, but not with the grand goals that um, Sharon has laid out explicitly to Haig and that Haig approves of. Uh, you, you, you didn't mention in your talk uh, one of the notes that you found where, uh, where uh, one of the American official says, green light for the invasion. Haig gives Israel a green light for all of those expansive objectives. I, I, I hope you'll talk about this and then let's talk later. Maybe one last question will be about Sabah and Shatila. But if you'd like to say a little more about this, um, yeah. this American-Israeli agreement that this is what Israel is going to do. The way in which the United States talked about this in the interim completely occludes this. It completely ignores the fact that the United States is fully aware of what Israel is intending to do. It's an extremely ambitious uh, uh, objective of reshaping Lebanon, reshaping the structure of power in the Middle East, eliminating the PLO from Lebanon, removing Syria from Lebanon, putting Israel into Lebanon, creating a puppet government that will make peace with Israel, with Israel against the wishes of a majority of Lebanese. These are expansive, vast objectives which both Haig and Sharon are in agreement on. If you'd like to say a little bit about that. I think it's important to take a step back and, and remind ourselves who were the personnel in Washington who facilitated this? Because one of the things I think that we don't consider enough about what happens in the shift from Carter to Reagan is a, a total uh, a reorientation ideologically of America's approach and thinking about the Middle East. And this is not to you know say that Carter himself and the administration doesn't have to account for, you know, the building of central command, the the presence of troops in, in in the Persian Gulf, a whole host of developments that actually do extend America's military presence in the Middle East. But it's ideologically the rise of Reagan and the neoconservative uh, advisors around him who really bring about uh, almost a revolution in the global South and America's treatment of the global South. I, I want to talk about Latin America and elsewhere. Uh, there's a really remarkable amount of new material that's come out about what has happened. But in the Middle East, uh, and in particular when it came uh, to the position of Haig and others, Jean Kirkpatrick, a whole slew of, uh, of, of people who were very open about their ideas in Commentary Magazine and elsewhere, uh, the, the, the notion of uh, you know, reshaping the region, the notion of reinscribing a kind of Cold War battle that saw the PLO as a Soviet proxy and Israel as a kind of key ally, that really took deep hold 
in Washington by 1981. So in some sense, Ariel Sharon, when he becomes defense minister and other Israeli officials are pushing against an open door when they come to talk about what they plan to do in Lebanon, obviously against the backdrop of earlier, you know, incursions of, of the, the the events that already happened up to Litani in 1978, there had been uh, precedents already uh, of, uh, of these incursions, but it's in particular, as you said, in May 1982, where, uh, to my astonishment, because I, I, I guess one of the things I learned in the research to this book, and I, I've, I've talked a lot about this with my students, is if I were a diplomat or uh, a note taker in diplomatic meetings, I would find it hard to believe that I would always put such incriminating things down on paper. But what you find, and I, I don't know if this has changed in the 21st century, and I you know, can't say what's on the Trump uh, a cache of documents, but certainly when it comes to the Reagan White House, nothing is uh, hidden. So there were these sets of notebooks at the Hoover uh, Institute Library in Stanford uh, of Charles Hill was very important, crucial staff secretary and worked for Alexander Haig, who captured in real time what Sharon was essentially selling to the Americans when he came to Washington. Uh, he talked about uh, needing a clear provocation. Um, he, uh, he, he talked about, um, you know, essentially not wanting to surprise the Americans. He says, uh, I can quote from it, no date is set, maybe it'll be tomorrow. Uh, and Haig says, you know, uh, I had felt that this was going to be substantial. I'm glad to see that there's some sign of a limited operation. And Sharon says to him, we are aware of your concern about size. Our intent is not a large operation. We'll try to be as small and efficient uh, as possible, to which Haig replies, like a lobotomy. And this is where you see Hill writing uh, underneath, this was a green light that was given to Sharon. So there's a kind of way in which the anticipation, and we know what happens. There's the attempted assassination uh, attack against um, Ambassador Argov at the Dorchester Hotel in Washington, which was not actually a PLO action, it was Abu Nidal, so on and so forth, that sets in motion or gives some idea of this idea of a, a, a provocation. But ultimately, the Americans knew full well what was planned and how extensive uh, it was. And I think uh, there is an interesting um, postscript to the story in a way, which is to think about the, the end of the Lebanon affair in American terms, both in terms of the Marine barracks bombing, but also the debates over the US military presence, which instigate a counterforce to some of this neoconservative thinking. So Caspar Weinberger, who's the Secretary of Defense, is, is very deeply opposed to the deployment of American troops. It's one of the reasons, uh, Rashid, as you know well, that the US withdraws military protection from Beirut in September of 1982. So there's a kind of post-Vietnam syndrome that's also animating the US, which, um, which is, 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 is very much uh, uh, existing uh, alongside, sorry, alongside um, the, uh, the, the desire for remaking the Middle East. And uh, Reagan learns the lesson the hard way. He talks openly about how shocked and horrified he is to see the photos of the saturation bombings of Beirut. Um, there's lots of instances in his diary where he talks about how he screams at Begin and he tells him, quote, this Holocaust must stop. So very uh, uh, sharp language you can't imagine happening today, um, but it's a bit disingenuous uh, to think that Reagan, uh, you know, rethinks this position 
given where ideologically his administration stood uh, at the beginning uh, of the invasion. And of course, there is an equal and I think important story to be told about the deception and also the, 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 the knowledge of the, the bigger plans that were underway in the Israeli cabinet uh, as well. I, I think the proof of what you're saying is that when Israel succeeds in uh, getting its candidate elected to president as president of Lebanon in an election in which the Israeli military and the Israeli security services bring members of parliament to the vote uh, and uh, Bashir Ismail is elected president of Lebanon. He's later, of course, assassinated his brother, Amin Ismail, and becomes president. The United States supports not just the government that the Israelis helped to install, but uh, initiates the process for a peace treaty between Lebanon and Israel, which is actually negotiated. It's never ratified by Lebanon with the Americans engaged. So the, the United States helps in the expulsion of the PLO from Beirut, which is one of Begin's. Uh, sorry, one of Sharon's objectives that Haig approved. And it also helps in the installation of a, an Israeli-dominated government in Beirut and in the negotiation of a peace treaty. So all of Reagan's, as you say, I think, theatrical opposition at the very end of the war, when public opinion in the United States was being affected by the constant bombardment of Beirut, um, is, is purely for show. In fact, the United States was in agreement with the basic Israeli objectives from the beginning to the end. And it's only Lebanese developments that changed that, um, as far as the treaty, for example, is concerned. Just to add one thing here, I think might be of interest is, is to consider also the Israeli reckoning with the delusions of how the Mossad and other intelligence officials were being fed completely uh, delusional ideas about right. Maronite political power right. and about the position of Palestinians in Lebanon. I mean, this that's is something, yeah, yeah, that's coming out now a bit more, but the, right. the way in which the Israeli, uh, and, and I, I just want to say that I think this goes back to a deeper need that existed even pre-1948 amongst the Zionist uh, 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 Zionist leadership to create alliances with what were perceived or seen as trustworthy non-Arab peripheral allies, right. and right. this kind of pattern really comes uh, comes home to roost in in the 1982 war. I mean, I, I think this is a, a function of something we see in the American government as well. Um, people like Uri Lebrani and all of these so-called experts on Lebanon who in the Mossad, in the military intelligence and so forth, advise, advise the Israeli government, um, or operating on a completely false basis of understanding as to Lebanon and how to operate in Lebanon. Uh, as you say, they thought they could do things that were undoable in Lebanon. You, you can't impose a peace treaty on Lebanon, given its sectarian and political configuration. You can't occupy Lebanon, nor the Syrians could do it, nor Israel could do it. Um, and uh, we see this in the U.S. government, people who have advocated failed policies for generations or failed policies that have been advocated by generations and people who've advocated the same intervention, military, whatever, and they continue to be promoted and the same, the same ideas continue to be pushed forward. Uh, repeated military interventions in the, in the Middle East have, have achieved nothing in the United States. Um, Israel's uh, occupation of Lebanon was a complete fiasco for the Israelis. I mean, 
leave aside the horrible effect on love. Let me move finally, the last uh, topic I want to talk about are the importance is the importance of the revelations in this book uh, regarding Israeli responsibilities uh, in Sabra and Shatila and, uh, and Amer the American responsibility. They're somewhat different responsibilities, but both share a responsibility for what happens. Begin famously said, uh, goys kill goys and Israel is blamed. Ah, we are innocent. These are Lebanese killing Palestinians. Why is Israel being blamed? Well, of course, that was completely false. Um, and the thing your book brings out using a whole array of documents, Israeli documents, and also the confidential annexes to the uh, to the uh, Kahan Commission report, uh, which you you and I both had access to, and which were never published, but which reveal a degree of collaboration in genocidal projects vis-a-vis -vis Palestinians and Lebanese, starting at. At, at least in the beginning of 1982, where Israeli officials and 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 and, and phalangist and Lebanese forces officials discuss what it amounts to genocide, removing the Palestinians from Lebanon. Bashir saying, "I'm going to turn Sabra and Shatila into a parking lot and a zoo," and the Israelis go along with this. So this is now this now becomes an Israeli phalangist project. It's not Bashir or or the South Lebanese army or the Lebanese forces that carry out the massacre. They're operating as agents of an agreed agenda, which the Israelis and the, the, their Lebanese allies are discussing for six months at least before the invasion of Lebanon. So that's the Israeli responsibility. The Israelis and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, their Lebanese allies are discussing not, not a massacre, not killing PLO terrorists, removing refugee camps entirely, driving populations out. That's what Bashir is talking about. And that's what the Israelis are okay with. And the revelations that are coming out in the Israeli press show that it was the, the destruction of the camps that was the objective, not just killing a few people. Uh, the second set of responsibilities are the American responsibilities, which you have detailed uh, on a different level. The United States had promised to protect these people, promised to prevent such an outcome, and did nothing when uh, Israel violated its the understandings that the Americans had with them and entered West Beirut and then allowed the phalange and then put the phalanges I should say not enter put these forces into the camps to carry out their joint their joint plan uh, I, I, if you want to amplify a little bit about that because I think this is really important uh, yeah. to, to stress yeah may, maybe I'll I'll start with with the, the story of the Israelis um and uh and the Lebanese I mean in a way it, it's it came out chronologically later than what I discovered about the Americans but I want to start there because of the the fact that it happens earlier and and these are the secret annexes of the Kahan Commission report which uh, as people will likely know was charged by the Israeli uh, government to investigate um Israeli responsibility um, in the events of the Sabra and Shatila massacre, although the scope that had initially been developed with this commission was never really interested in understanding the dynamics that led to the violence. It was interested in very discreetly understanding whether there was uh, Israeli responsibility, and it essentially exonerated uh, Sharon and others from direct responsibility, but talked about indirect responsibility. So there's a whole broader conversation to be had about the nature of that investigation. But 
in the raw material assembled for this report, which had not been published, which was given to me by Bill Quant, who had been uh, a, a witness or was engaged to be a witness in a defamation trial that Ariel Sharon had launched against Time magazine, which blamed him for the massacre, there is very clear evidence well before September of 1982 of what uh, was in the air, so to speak. And here I, I want to maybe just quote from one or two of those documents just to give you a sense, because I think one of the mistaken ways in which people have talked about Sabra and Shatila is to obsessively look for an idea of a smoking gun of somebody giving an order to commit a massacre. And I actually think that this is less the, the, the thing we need to focus on than the, the, the environment and the thinking and the intent and the atmosphere that creates the conditions of mass violence and expulsion and, and ends with massacres. Uh, and uh, this is in July of 1982, where Sharon, um, members of the Mossad, as well as Bashir Jemayel and uh, Ali Hobea and others met uh, in the Lebanese forces headquarters in Beirut. Uh, and to quote from this uh, document, Bashir inquired whether we would object, this is the Mossad writing down the conversation, whether we would object if he introduces bulldozers into the refugee camps in the South in order to remove them so that the refugees will not remain in the South. The defense minister, this is Sharon, responded that this is not our business. We do not wish to deal with Lebanon's internal affairs. So here you get a kind of pattern also of plausible deniability. You guys do what you want to do. Um, and well, all of this, mind you, is to take place in a situation where Israel would be the occupying power. Precisely. So Israel is under international law responsible for what its Lebanese allies do. So the plausible deniability, of course, ignores international law. Go, go on, sir. Yeah, and later Sharon says to Bashir, what would you all do about the refugee camps? Bashir says, we are planning a real zoo. Sharon says, are you planning to go into West Beirut? And he goes on uh, to talk about making uh, Sabra a zoo and Shatila Beirut's parking place. Uh, so several uh, descriptions of acts of brutality um, and uh, specific references to acts of elimination of locals, quote, most likely Palestinians. This is, this is again, two months before the massacre takes place. Um, and, and just one other, I think, from June 23rd, uh, this was a report uh, it passed the foreign ministry. Uh, uh, the, Lebanon is Bashir's country. This is the Israeli intelligence speaking. It is his right to get assistance from the Shia at a certain stage and then handle them differently. Bashir adds, it is possible that in this context, they will need several dear Yassins. Talking, of course, uh, about um, reference to the massacre from the 1948 war. So the point I'm trying to make here is that what is in the air well before the massacre takes place is eliminationist thinking and discussion, which of course uh, suffuses uh, all of this. The second thing, just to, to add to your final point about the Americans. Let, 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 let me just add that. So when Israel trucks militiamen into the camps, this is what's everybody knows is going to happen. This is what is intended. This is an Isra when the Israelis fire illumination shells to, to facilitate the, the murders that are taking place in the refugee camps. This is what the commanders of the Israeli army, this is what the heads of the Israeli government, this is what the heads of intelligence understand to be uh, intended. 
Well, you, you, you don't need to look further than the minutes of the meetings on September 16th and 17th while the massacre was taking place to appreciate just how much this was understood by Israeli officials who, uh, as some, and I write about this in the book, I've written about this elsewhere, understood very well what was going to happen or what was happening at the time. And uh, this is, I think, where we need to consider a little bit American agency and complicity in the massacre. Uh, and these were uh, minutes of meetings that I, again, I did not expect would ever be present or in existence, certainly not declassified. And I happened to enter into the Israeli state archives uh, around the time, I guess it was now thinking backwards, it was 2010 or so, uh, which was in the window in which material from the 1982 war had been opened. And when Israeli uh, uh, documents were opened at the time, this is not the case anymore, um, they're opened in full without redaction. And I was given minutes of these meetings, which you can't find in the United States because those are still redacted, but the, Amer the Israeli version is the same and show very clearly that the Americans were essentially uh, dragged into this uh, delusional idea uh, by Sharon and the Israelis that um, you know, there were only quote unquote terrorists in the camp and they had to be cleaned out. The Americans, including uh, uh, Morris Straper, uh, implicate himself by saying, uh, you know, we're not going to stop you essentially at some point. Uh, Sharon saying, we will kill them. Um, you know, nobody's going to tell us what to do essentially. Um, and demands by the Americans to, uh, to, to put an end to what was happening uh, are, 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 are resisted by the Israelis to the point where, because the, the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah was beginning that evening, uh, they ask for a two-day uh, extension. This is really the period of time in which the massacre is unfolding. So the evidence from that, uh, uh, from that cachet of documents shows you very clearly how the Americans are kind of forced or pushed into this uh, as well um, uh, while the massacre is happening. And then, of course, later talk about uh, Israeli responsibility and blame, but did nothing uh, when the Israeli troops circled West Beirut. So uh, these two aspects, I think, and, and here I'm indebted uh, to uh, the writing and, and discussion with Bayan uh, Nuayed Alhut, who is the foremost chronicler of the massacre, um, who, who talks very much about uh, this triangle of understanding the direct uh, uh, killers, you know, the, 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 the phalanges who go into the camps, but also the structure that produces the violence uh, and how we can understand uh, it in real time. Right. I, I want to stress something that you that you just talked about, which is these crucial meetings between the Americans and the Israelis as the Israeli army goes into West Beirut following the assassination of Bashir Ismail, the president-elect. And Morris Draper, who is the deputy to Philip Habib, the presidential envoy, who's involved in the negotiations over the Lebanese war, is arguing with Ariel Sharon. Now, the Americans, not the Israelis have meanwhile been claiming that there are thousands of terrorists, i.e. armed Palestinian militia and, and, and fide'in in the refugee camps. This is false. The Americans know this is false. We know the Americans know this is false. There are no, quote unquote, terrorists, i.e. the military apparatus of the PLO has been removed. The heavy arms of the PLO are gone. The, the fighters who resisted the Israelis for two and a half months on the, on the, uh, at the edges of Beirut are gone. There are no, quote unquote, terrorists. They're just Palestinian civilians in the camp. The Americans know this. Begin and his propaganda apparatus, and Sharon in particular, are saying there are thousands of terrorists in the camps. 
And that's why we're sending these people in to kill them. We're sending the Lebanese militias in. It's a Lebanese issue. We're not doing it ourselves. But because there are these quote unquote terrorists, the, 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 crucial, the crucial moment comes when Draper tries to say to Begin, no, 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 there are no terrorists. And, and sorry, to, excuse me, to Sharon. And Sharon just bulldozes him. It's an extraordinary moment in American-Israeli relations. It shows the tail wagging the dog. It shows that the Israeli junior ally tells the American superpower, we are going to do what we want to do based on a false interpretation of reality. And we know you know that's not true, but we're going to do it anyway. And the Americans go along. This is, this is the American responsibility. The United States had promised in a, a, a series of undertakings with the PLO to protect the civilian population that leaves, uh, remains behind in the camps uh, in the event of a PLO withdrawal. That was the reason the withdrawal took so, it took so long to negotiate the withdrawal agreement, that the PLO demanded at least protection for the civilian population that would be left behind after the people who had fought to defend them were removed. The United States violates this agreement and goes along with, with, a, with an Israeli interpretation of terrorists in the camps, which they know are false. And we did not know this until your book came out. Um, if you want to say anything more, please do so, uh, Seth, but we only have a couple more minutes. I have a few questions, but I don't really think that we have time um, to take those questions. They're in the, they're in the, yeah. the question and answer box. If you want to Say yeah. concluding words and maybe speak to some of those yeah. questions. Yeah, I mean, I I, I want to say something broader also than just the what you just talked about, Rashid, which is is to think about the pattern of dehumanization that all of this indicates. And I think and and Leila Shahid makes the very insightful point about considering, you know, wider instruments of strategic aims, going back to Dir Yassin, Tantura, Kafar Qasim. I mean, one of the things that a lot of the discussions around these incidents tell us is that there is continuity here in how thinking about Palestinians persists historically. And so I've I've written about this, others have, there's a line between what happens there and the killing of Shirin Abu Akleh. And that matters if we want to understand why the impunity exists, is that there's a deeper historical uh, thread that connects a way of thinking and talking about Palestinian claims and Palestinians themselves that has become um, a, a kind of uh, essential to the way in which uh, I think that this 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 discourse has evolved over time. Excuse me, over time. Um, uh, and 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 that maybe brings me to the question of uh, you know what is the way forward or what is the re realistic hope uh, that Musna asks. And I think the the key to to any way of going forward is having some reckoning with 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 how we got here. One of the problems is, is that we don't uh, have a way to talk about political uh, uh, outcomes which are rooted in understanding the dynamics that produce this current condition. And I I actually think that the the, the example of the historical uh, unearthing of these events is actually key if we want to ever think our way. To parameters of how to move forward. You actually can't detach yourself from the mechanisms, for example, of violence, or in the case, uh, finally, of the question of autonomy, um, uh, of the way in which that concept or the conceptual history, the way people think about indirect rule, think about limited rights, shapes or frames any kind of political outcome for Palestinian 
uh, uh, self-determination. If you see Palestinian claims as derivative of only local autonomy, this is how you get the Palestinian Authority. This is how you get what you see in the streets of Nablus today. I, I, I think that that line has to be understood, that there's conceptual reasons why the development of this uh, limited form of sovereignty or with lack of sovereignty ends you in a situation where you have uh, essentially a, 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 a local force doing the dirty work of uh, of a colonial occupier. And this is what I think we see on a day-to-day -day basis. And you can't break out of that unless you ask yourself what kind of political possible uh, outcome could exist then that would actually include or, or embrace possibilities of Palestinian sovereignty. I wanna, I wanna thank you on behalf of the Institute, uh, Seth. I wanna thank the audience uh, for their participation. Um, the Institute for Palestine Studies is very proud to be publishing Seth's work. Uh, we've referenced two books published by the Institute in today's talk, uh, Bayan Noyed Hout's wonderful book on Sabra and Shatira, which was published in Arabic by the Institute, and uh, Elias Shufani's uh, book, Tariq Begin in a Camp David, which was published many, many years ago by, by the Institute. Um, history is uh, the basis for understanding the present, as, as I think Seth has very eloquently just said, and these are some of the many books that the Institute publishes that I hope will help readers in Arabic and in English uh, to understand the present better. Uh, thank you, everybody, and um, um, Salam alaikum.